Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, ZipRecruiter, Quip, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon. 44 years ago, on January 23rd of 1974, at 8.32 p.m., a loud explosion rocked the small towns of Llandithlo and Llanderfell in North Wales. The explosion was accompanied by 999 calls to the police, with eyewitnesses reporting strange lights streaking across the sky. This was the beginning of what has come to be known as the Berwyn Mountain Incident. At the time, I was living about a mile and a half from the village. It must have been January 1974. Going on for nine o'clock, could hear a big rumble and it kept coming closer and closer. And next thing, everything started shaking. We had an old washing machine, everything, everything tumbled over, all over and shaking so much. As if somebody lifted a bed and dropped it down. The house absolutely shook. They all ran out and uh, looked towards the Berry Mountains, it was happening. And all you could see was all these lights and looked like a fire. But was it just a fire? Witnesses said they had seen an egg-shaped craft fly past them and described red and amber pulsing lights. Whatever caused the earth to shake was felt all the way in the Isle of Man, nearly 100 miles away. A retired gamekeeper named Garrett Edwards said in a documentary about the events of that night that he saw a flying saucer hovering for 10 minutes over the mountains just under a month later, before it vanished into space at lightning speed. He made a point to say he was on his way to the pub not coming back from it and hadn't been drinking. But what about the light on the mountain in January? It was said to be stationary and glowing brightly with a red-orange color and it was coming up from the ground. The night it happened, 14-year-old Hugh Lloyd was visited by several policemen at the farm he lived on nearby. They commandeered a Land Rover to take up towards the light as a normal vehicle could not have made it. They found nothing but an empty poacher's truck parked up the mountain road. This later led to stories that the only light on the mountain was one used by the poachers, although one of them recently told a documentary crew that they were finished for the night by 8.30 when all this happened and their lights had been switched off. Of course, some members of the village tried to investigate only to encounter strange men along the way. I heard a cameraman, he went up the next day and he took some photographs and the next thing he said, a fella got up out of the bracket, called his camera, took the film no out and, and, and totally exposed the film and he said, go back, he said, go back. There is much speculation about what could have happened. The military was on the scene within 30 minutes, although the closest base was an hour and a half away. No crater or wreckage of any kind has ever been found related to the incident. The eventual official explanation itself became something of an exercise in improbability when the events of the night were labeled as an earthquake occurring at the exact moment that a meteor streaked across the local skies. Tonight, in part one of two on the connected events of a UFO flap in Wales, we take a look at the Berwyn Mountain incident. It was actually hot home when we were watching World at War, and then the picture went, and then the whole place started shaking. Next thing, there was a knock on the door, and there's a few police officers there, and they said, there's been a crash on the Bedouin, and we'd like to take your lander if that's okay with you. Six or seven policemen jumped in the back, and off we went to the top.
Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. One soldier, under the pseudonym James Prescott, was ordered to Llanderfall with four others and loaded two oblong boxes into their armored truck. They then ferried the bodies back to the chemical and biological defense establishment at Porton Down, under strict orders not to stop for anything. Nick Redfern, paraphrased from his book, Cosmic Crashes. Join us tonight for a trip to Berwyn Mountain in Wales. And we're back. From Atchison, Kansas. <laughs> yeah, we just returned from the 22nd Amelia Earhart Festival, and it's safe to say that little town really made an impression on us. There's going to be a lot of great content coming up for that trip, and we've made a lot of new connections with Earhart researchers and pioneering women aviators from around the world. We'd like to thank Chasing Earhart, specifically Chris, Vanessa, and Evan Williamson, and of course Benjamin as well, for having us on their discussion panel, which a 4K video of should be available in the not-too-distant future on the Chasing Earhart webpage and on also their Facebook page. Yeah, we'd also like to thank the town of Atchison itself, especially Karen Seberg, Jackie Pergant, and the head of tourism, Maria Miller. As well as the Atchison, Kansas Elks Lodge number 647, with special recognition from Astonishing Legends for Kansas State Elks President Debbie Betts, as well as trustee Diana Surveys and Bob Cobley, who crafted custom-made drinks for our joint meet-and-greet with Justin and Aaron from Generation Y, which helped make that meetup a huge success. Oh, and for those who wondered who the mystery guest we mentioned on social media was, it was Tess. And believe it or not, that was the first time in three years that we have met her in person. Talk about astonishing. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> it was, it was a, such a delightful, strange experience. Uh, well, anyway, that was a blast. And man, we really hit it off with Aaron and Justin from Generation Y. Uh, there may be some collaboration with them in the future if we can find the right story for it. And we'd also like to thank Jackie and Mark Hebe, owners of Sugarbot Sweet Shop at 433 Jackson Street in St. Charles, Missouri. They baked a ton of custom-made goods for us and brought them to the meet-and-greet in Atchison. We posted pictures online, and they were almost too good-looking to eat. <laughs> but that, and that, of course, didn't stop us. Yeah, we ate them anyway. Uh, but it's the best <laughs> lemon bar I've ever had, honestly. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, thank you, Jackie and Mark. If you don't live in St. Louis or near St. Charles, pop on over to sugarbotsweetshop.com. That's sugarbotsweetshop.com, and you can order some of their awesome baked goods online. They're actually artistic and delicious. It's the best of both worlds here. Yes. And lastly, we really want to thank Megan Wenning for auxiliary logistics and support, and of course, all the fans that came out to meet us at the Elks Lodge in Atchison for the meetup with the two of us and Gen Y. You guys are truly the best, and without you, we really have no show. We can't name everyone we saw, so we won't. <laughs> but you know who you are, and we really had a blast hanging out and talking with you. Uh, some of you came a very long way to see us, and it really does mean a lot to us. Keep Atchison on your radar, too, because we will be back. We might have received a personalized invitation of sorts from a ghostly spirit there. That was not an invitation. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to build drama. I'm just, just I haven't along, slept please. since that incident happened, just for the okay, record. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay, <laughs> let's get down to business. Uh, right, time to talk about the Berwyn Mountain incident. And this is such an odd case, and we're packaging it together with another incident for our next show as a sort of a mini UFO flap in Wales. Tonight's story probably wins the award for most absurd official explanation, 
And the next one should win an award for number of witnesses and documentation. We're dark next week, but we are going to be back the week after next with that next part. Uh, Yeah, folks. And this month was a lot of one week on and one week off due to extensive travel and summer vacations. But we'll be back on our regular schedule in August. And we've got quite an October plan for you guys, as we always do. So for this show tonight, we have a guest who's coming on to help us tell the story. And you're going to understand why when you hear our interview with him. But before we begin, we have to give profuse thanks to the British TV show, which he worked on, The Unexplainers, which is also available as a podcast called The Unexplainers Extra. So you can find that anywhere you find podcasts. It's a comedic take on the same kinds of topics we love to cover, and the two hosts are hilarious. They really are. I, I just love the chemistry between those two, just ribbing each other in a way <laughs> that uh, far beyond the what Scott and I do here. You can also visit their website, www.theunexplainers.co.uk. Okay, let's roll our interview with Reese. We are on with Reese Waters. This is a very unusual episode for us because listeners contact us all the time with stuff, but very rarely do listeners with this gentleman's experience do it. This is somebody who has worked in uh, production and uh, documentaries and other stuff. I guess freelance, correct me if I'm wrong, Reese, but for the BBC and producing these different series. And he reached out to us and said, hey, look, I've done a whole bunch of uh, research on this UFO story or a couple of stories that took place in Wales where he used to live. And he said, I would love to share this research with you and have you guys do an episode on it. And it was not something I had heard of. Forrest, were you familiar with it before we started? I think I've heard of the name Berwin, but what I love about it is that it's not widely known, I think, in the United States. And apparently it's known as Roswelsh. So uh, without further (laughs) ado, I would like to introduce Reese Waters. Reese, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Nice to to be on. It's great to have you. I'm considering when you first contacted us, you actually were still living in in Wales, and now you've uh, come across the pond to Nova Scotia, I understand. Yeah, we've been in Nova Scotia for about three months. That's a big move, right? You got a big family, (laughs) too. That must have been fun. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've I've got like three kids, and we brought the dog, so it's been it's been an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's like you've moved from one area of beauty and mystery to another, <laughs> just on another continent. Like Oak Island is thirty forty minutes down the road, so <laughs> I haven't yeah, had, that's I haven't right. Had time, I've been here three months, so I haven't had time to go there yet. So, uh, Reese, why don't you tell us, you know, what the general impression, especially in Wales, of this particular event? How do they consider this event and what happened that made this into something that people still remember to this day? Well, I wouldn't say it's a widely known event. I'd say that within that town, within within the village of uh, Llandrithlow, there's certainly um, a lasting memory from older people in, in the village. And within that region, it's something that is kind of like a novel event that happened that people remember and talk about. And every once in a while, some investigators will walk into town looking to speak to people and it'll be remade in a documentary about, you know, the UK's strangest events or UFO moments, those kind of discovery show episodes where they're looking at different, you know, UFO incidents from from across the world that maybe people haven't heard of in in that sense. So it's kind of um, known as a kind of an, an anomaly, but in terms of a wider context, it's not something that is on people's minds very often, I suppose. Is it a famous story or, I mean, I know you just said this, but it's like, it's, if you went up to the average person on the street and you mentioned the Berwyn incident, would they know what it was? I mean, because Roswell is obviously super famous in the U.S., so do you think that's something that people would pick up on? I'd say specifically to that area, they definitely would have heard of it. And if people are into the topic, they definitely would have heard of it. But I'd say that probably the general public may have heard of Roswell. That would probably ring true more to them than Berwyn because it's such a – it was kind of covered in the press at the time. 
but it's not something that is has become so culturally significant as Roswell, I suppose. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the area where this took place? So it's northeast Wales. Um, it's not too far from, from the border with England. And it's a kind of a mountain range. Um, I think the tallest peak is around 2,700 feet. So it's, it's not a huge mountain range, but in terms of the UK, it's kind of a substantial mountainous area. It's quite inaccessible. Most of the uh, the surface of the mountains are quite boggy. They're hard to kind of travel across. A lot of the time, farmers will either go on foot or on uh, quad bikes like ATVs. And it's quite a difficult area for people to farm. You can't really grow anything there. So they just tend to be mainly populated by um, sporadic kind of small farms with endless sheep just wandering around on the mountains. And then kind of lots of small little isolated villages around where you maybe have one road in um, just because of the geography of the area. It's not densely populated. It's very scenic, very pretty. And a lot of the families, especially in North Wales, is one of those kind of areas where the geography has informed a lot of history. A lot of invasions failed trying to cross those mountains back when people liked to invade a lot, each other a lot in the UK. So there's, there's a really kind of beautiful area, a difficult place to travel around even today. But at the same time, it's got a really unusual sense of mystery because of that history that goes back thousands of years. There, There's a lot of folklore. There's a lot of um, interest in kind of anomalies as well that, that, that people talk about related to folklore, but then obviously more modern anomalies like this incident, I suppose. From what I understand, the tallest peak is only about 3,000 feet above sea level? Yeah, but for the UK, that's high. Right, <laughs> It's certainly right. not the Alps, it's not the Rockies or anything like that. No, so, but you're you saying know. it's been hard to pass. It was hard to pass for these invasions, even though it wasn't you know, a monstrous range. So it must be particularly tricky terrain. Yeah, and, and the weather there is, is awful. <laughs> I've seen a few articles where people talk about Snowdonia is like the tallest mountain um, in England and Wales. Ben Nevis in Scotland is the tallest, but a lot of people say that Snowdon is more deadly because is even driving distance of a lot of major cities. They turn up unprepared and they walk up, they try and walk up and the weather changes, the mist descends, the temperatures plummet and people vanish all the time. And, and you know, it's quite a dangerous place. And this area is very similar to that. The land is boggy. It's really hard to kind of cross. I've tried hiking over both sides of that mountain range and you kind of spend a lot of time uh, knee deep in mud. You follow tracks that the sheep tend to follow. They tend to make these little uh, trails just because they tend to stick to the high ground to avoid all the boggy areas just to get around but it's just a really difficult terrain it's not particularly it looks spectacular it doesn't look anywhere near as threatening as, as say if you were stood looking at somewhere like the Matterhorn for instance but once you actually try and cross it just like a quagmire of mud and gorse bushes and streams and it's so easy just to get lost in there so it's deceptive yeah, experience. definitely. And it's not a huge space as well. It's not a massive mountain range that is kind of vast in the scale of that you would get in other places. But because it's not easy to cross, it's still quite deserted in that sense. Most of the people you'd see, they would be an adventurous hiker or camper or somebody, or usually the only people who you will come across, they would be a farmer. This is Charlotte Underwood. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Let's move on to the actual incident. January 23rd, 1974. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened that night? The understanding that I had from going to that village was that it was kind of a mass experience. It, it, was, it was one of those UFO incidents where 
It was experienced by lots of different people and lots of people agreed on some very specific details. Um, so the first kind of moment that really shocked people was the impact or the tremor from some kind of explosion or some people say it was an earthquake. But everyone in the village experienced a huge quake, essentially, through the ground. So people said they were lifted out of bed. Other people said that their televisions fell off the TV stand as they were just sat relaxing at home. I think it was about 8.30 in the evening that it happened. Obviously, everyone just came out of their houses to work out what had happened. Um, for instance, there was a farmer called Elvid Roberts, and he was concerned that the local dam had been breached. And that was what the rumbling was. That was what the um, the potential um, kind of impact was, was water, you know, explosion or the, the water burst into the dam. And he headed out just to go and investigate exactly what it could have been. He went outside to meet his maker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess the training kicked in. And, yeah. <laughs> um, he wasn't thinking about his own personal safety, so <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in fairness to it. And he, he headed out as well. So he headed out to investigate. Lots of people basically thought that it was a plane crash as well. Um, Pat Evans is, is one of the uh, local people who was remembered for it. And she doesn't give any interviews anymore because she's been misquoted so many times by different researchers. And her story has been added to without her input. There's an interview with her on YouTube. Yeah, we saw that. You sent that to us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she was with her two teenage daughters. She thought that maybe it was a plane crash and she could offer first aid as a trained nurse. But all they saw was some really strange lights that didn't really um, resemble anything they recognized, a kind of a red-orange glow on the slope of the mountain. So a lot of people actually headed towards where they thought the crash happened, were it the epicenter of something, like a lot of the people in the in the village? Yeah, so I guess you would call them first responders. And this was like the 70s in, in a small rural area of, of North Wales. So someone who worked as a nurse would go, oh, my training's kicking in. I better go and help. Something's up. Same as the, the, the policeman, I guess. So people who felt that they could be useful and that it was something that would be relevant to the, the skills they had and they could help reacted in that way that they were trained. So one gentleman called Hugh Lloyd, who was 14 at the time, he went with the police to investigate. They came to him because they knew that he knew the mountain. He lives as far up the mountain as you can probably get. And he took them up in, in a Land Rover where they saw more unusual lights that didn't really make a lot of sense to them. The police saw the lights? The police saw the lights with him, yes. I think there was okay. a, an inspector. Um, uh -huh. The really strange thing was that I think what was experienced was a large tremor and then you know, multiple witnesses from different sides of the mountain saw unusual lights that didn't behave in a way that they recognized an aircraft or any other kind of object you might see in the night that kind of gave off light, I suppose. One of the weird things that you kind of get from the people in the village there who remember it is that they all shared a recollection of the military arriving quite rapidly after the incident. Um, right. Some researchers have tried to disprove it because there was a, a Harrier jump jet crash there in the 80s and the, the military did turn up and cordoned off the area because it was still sensitive technology and there was a kind of a collective forgetting within that village. And when we talked about this with the people who, who remembered this, they, they had a clear recollection of both incidents because they were nearly a decade apart. So the really interesting thing of, of kind of being in the village and speaking to people and going to the pub and having a pint with these people and then all more stories coming out of the woodwork is that there was kind of a unanimous recollection of this unusual impact, these lights, and then the military just being there within about half an hour, I think, of the incident, even though the closest military base was probably about an hour and a half away. 
And then we got some other stories, lots of interest in kind of saucy stuff around the military, cordoning people off and destroying film from cameras as people tried to get up the mountain the next day and things that I haven't been able to confirm as <laughs> as, as a genuine story. But um, th- those basic facts of an impact and the lights and then the military just descending on, on the entire town and then leaving again without really any kind of official explanation what had happened is a very unusual thing to hear from so many people. You know, there's no real explanation that feels like it ties all the pieces together. And and personally, I I think that the explanations that you hear for it can cover parts of it, but there's no real complete story that has been proven in any any sense. So it's, it's very open to interpretation by a lot of people. And I know there's lots of different researchers within the UK who've gone there and spoken to people and found new witnesses 20 years later and kind of come up with their own uh, new sightings on a mountain half an hour later or incidents happening at sea that evening. And it becomes quite complicated <laughs> on that basis. You know, there's lots of different theories, lots of different continuations that run from that night. But to me, the really interesting thing is those just core facts of an entire village that remember those in a really vivid way, in a passionate way, one that they're really confident to talk about without fear of ridicule because they all experienced it together. How large is the village? I think there must be like a thousand people there. <laughs> it's not a big okay. village at all. One of the things in, in some of the material that you sent us, some of the YouTube videos and interviews, was that people were clearly familiar with what an earthquake felt like, and they seemed to clearly be stating that this didn't feel like an earthquake to them. Yeah, so the Wales isn't necessarily a seismically active area, the UK, but, you, you know, there are tremors every three or four years. You experience a mild tremor, and it's an unusual thing to experience when it's you have that kind of gap, you kind of forget about it, and then there's a slight rumble. But I think this was much more like a shock wave. This was something that was really substantial, and obviously the epicenter was supposedly at Lake Bala, which is really close to where the village is. But just the intensity of it, people physically feeling like they've been lifted out of their beds. I don't think there's, although it was considered a large shock wave, when people look at the the, the seismic activity there, it felt like a much more surface-based kind of impact or a surface-based kind of uh, shockwave for them. Additionally, with regard to, because one of the things that I had read in some of our research was that, you know, people were, had felt it all the way in Northern Ireland as well. So the impact of this, it went pretty far away, right? Yeah, I think there were people in the Isle of Man, I believe, who yeah. felt the tremor as well, which is like across the Irish Sea. So, yeah, it was measured in lots of different places. So by organizations that measure these kind of things. So it was a it was a real recorded event of a substantial shock, I suppose. But here and again, we have no crater. We have no evidence of an impact. No. Yeah, there's nothing that indicates that something would happen, which in a way does sound like an earthquake. On the other hand... You have the military, as you said, showing up in 30 minutes when they were hour to an hour and a half away. So I guess that would suggest, and we'll get to explanations in a minute, but that would suggest that it was either something under their control or it was something that they had been tracking before it crashed or stopped. So which brings me to my next question about all the details with the witnesses and everything. And that was that several of them described seeing a glowing orange light that was stationary on the hill, right? Yeah, and, and some of them described it as actually being on the ground as well. So right. it, it, something was, whatever was producing the light was based on the side of the mountain. 
uh, directly after the shock, really. Right. Was there a lot of variation in the description of the light? Because, you know, some interviews we saw, somebody will say it's a green fireball or, you know, a deep orange or, or something reddish. Were those pretty consistent or did this thing change colors? Yeah, I think some people who said it was like an egg, they saw an egg-shaped craft. Other people saw red lights. Other people saw just brilliant white light that just lit up the entire area. So the only consistent thing is that there was some kind of light or some kind of some object that was was kind of dominating the, the kind of mountainside in that sense. So it does seem to change slightly depending on who you speak to in terms of the description, but the color the shape, how it was necessarily, um, was it on the ground, was it in the sky, was it hovering above the ground? They're very similar. They're not identical, but a lot of the descriptions do do kind of uh, also um, confirm the position it was on the mountain, for instance. So where he was with the police officers in the Land Rover was one side of the mountain and where Pat Evans and her daughters were it was another side of the mountain. And from those two positions where they described it is roughly the same area. So you kind of had multiple witnesses from different angles. So it seemed to indicate that the light was happening from roughly the same areas. You had sent us uh, a quote, which I thought was interesting. And also it says, what does PC mean? Does that mean police or? Uh, police constable. Police constable. Receiving 999 calls of UFO along with a witness who said, saw a bright red light like coal fire red, large perfect circle, like a big bonfire, could see lights above and to the right and white lights moving to bottom. Light changed color to yellowish white and back again. And then uh, someone else, I guess, said, there's been a large explosion in the area and there's a large fire in the mountainside. I am speaking from and can see the fire where I am. So the fact that they went in and they said they couldn't find a crash or any evidence of a crash or a crater or anything, even with this fire, there's no evidence that the fire happened either? No, um, and Hugh, who was a farmer at the time in that area, his livestock were on the mountainside, and he said in the following kind of days and weeks, they never found anything that resembled any kind of physical evidence that was left behind from whatever happened. You would think that in that scenario that you could just say, oh, well, all these people are imagining something, but you're talking about a thousand people, a thousand phone calls. It reminds me, frankly, of something that took place near the area that you've moved to now, which is the Shag Harbor incident, which is something that we've been meaning to cover. And our friend Jordan has covered it, the nighttime podcast, about a couple of uh, UFOs that became USOs, underwater submerged objects that went down in Shag Harbor, which is not far from where you are. But the point of that is that all the townspeople witnessed it, including the police, everybody. So it's really fascinating. And the idea that there's no evidence of this. So the way this is treated is that there's two different things going on. One is that there's the light that streaks across the sky. And the other is that there's this explosion or earthquake type action, right? Which is is something that's going to come up later when they try to explain what happened. Yeah. So you've got this impact and then you've got lights that don't necessarily resemble something has crashed and no physical evidence that represents some kind of crash site. So it's hard to put the two together. I mean, it sounds like they must have been related to have this kind of once in a generation kind of earthquake, I suppose, or kind of impact and a kind of uh, shockwave. And then to have what people described as fire and, you know, as lights in the sky and as, you know, kind of craft. It just seems like such a uh, two very different strange events that have to be linked for them to be happening so immediately to each other. That is the official explanation is two, as they would say, mundane events like an earthquake, but also a meteor. The meteor explanation, that was the governmental 
administrative answer to this uh, event, right? It's just two things happening simultaneously, which is quite a coincidence, but that's it. That's their official explanation, correct? Yeah, I think the official explanation is that a meteor shower happened at the same time as an earthquake in the same area. <laughs> it's laughable. It's laughable well, to me. It could I mean, what is the t- I don't, I'm sure we have people that listen that have degrees in statistics, but like, what is the possibility of that? I would love to speak to a, a mathematician to work out the probability of those two things happening. Um, yeah. People went there looking for, I think, staff and students from um, some of the universities in, in the Midlands um, and the north of England went there looking for, for meteorites. Um, yes. Because if there was a meteor shower, and I know that there was an RAF aircraft, a survey aircraft that flew over looking for a crater, and the information that was released said, you know, they couldn't find anything, and people on the ground couldn't find anything. So, I guess if you look at it on that level, you know, a meteor shower could have happened in that area, and that was an explanation for light in the sky that didn't leave any physical evidence on the ground. You know, they were burning up in the atmosphere as they entered, and then also the earthquake is a perfectly rational thing to experience. But the two happening at the same time, the military turning up for statistically, what was the chances of an earthquake, a meteor shower, and also um, the military turning up by chance in your village? Yeah, <laughs> which has of, happened. We were driving by all yeah, of us. Yeah, exactly. We, we just thought we'd, we were looking, you know, we were just looking for some pubs or something. <laughs> but, but then also the fact that the description of the light doesn't resemble a meteor shower. The good thing about North Wales is I've been there on holidays lots. I've got family there, is that there's very little light pollution. And sure. on a good night, in the summer, I've done it. I did it a few years ago. You you lie under a blanket, just look up at the sky. If you're there for an hour, you might see four or five meteors streak through the sky. So it's, it's not an unusual thing to, to see. You know, most of these people would probably have seen a meteorite at some point in an area like that. So the description they give is so far from that, and the description is so consistently far from that from so yes. many different sources and from people who would not waste their time sensationalizing this kind of thing. You know, you've got a nurse, you've got police officers, you've got a farmer, people who tend to not really worry about this kind of stuff, just all consistently confirming the same kind of uh, details of this event. And, you know, the idea of it being a, a conspiracy by the village to maybe put them on the map or something or to have a kind of Loch Ness style kind of tourism draw i don't know it just, it just seems so implausible they, they, have people put that forth as an idea that, that they're <laughs> that they're no. just trying to draw tourists in the interesting thing is just down the road there's a lake called lake bala that has got his own loch ness kind of monster legend does it really it's, yeah it does yeah <laughs> well we you know when we were researching one of the clips you sent us talks about the bala fault which is the earthquake fault i guess yeah but like it didn't say anything about monster in the lake. That's pretty awesome. It's the largest lake in Wales, and uh-huh. it was formed after the Ice Age, and there's a fish that is unique to the lake that's been there since the Ice Age. I think it's just isolated and trapped there. It's called the Gwynead. And the lake itself is just really geographically unique. Um, apparently, the underneath the surface, you can't see it further than a few meters. The water is uh, really uh, murky from the, the kind of the water that runs into it off the mountain sides, and the geography under there is really dangerous, apparently, for, for diving and things like that. But the whole story of, of the, the monster in the lake, I think there are some people who would like to try and capitalize on it <laughs> for an exaggerated <laughs> slightly for, for, for tourism and go, hey, this is the Welsh Loch Ness. And there was actually a Japanese TV show 
that brought a submarine to the UK and they took it to Loch Ness and then they brought it to Balor as well to take a look. And I spoke to a gentleman who was a local politician who went down in the submarine with them and he said that all they managed to find was a shopping trolley uh, and an old car. So <laughs> There's always a car in the lake. Yeah. I don't no, know, no, there's like always why... a shopping trolley or shopping cart as we say here too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did speak to a uh, father and son who were from just across the border who used to drive to the lake to go fishing and they saw essentially what could be described as like a a black horse's head come out of the water like shiny and like with a similar texture to like a killer whale like a black shiny skin um and it really freaked them out and he i think he was a taxidermist so he knew a lot about the fish he'd preserved fish he knew everything there was to know about the kind of creatures in there and it freaked him out he doesn't go fishing there anymore (laughs) wow So it put him off, like, even going there. Yeah. And it's not even that deep. I mean, looking right now, it's only 138 feet. It's the deepest point. Yeah. People who really want to believe it say, but maybe there's a tunnel that runs to Loch Ness or something. (laughs) 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 Well, I was, yeah, that's one of the theories of Loch Ness is that there's a tunnel that runs to the sea. Exactly. Nessie can get in and out of, so... There is an interesting story from that lake, though, because you can find this out online. There was a circus owner who wanted to capitalize on World War II, I believe, and he was trying to train his sea lions in his circus to attack limpet mines to warships. And they trained them in the lake. And some people think that the spot sightings of sea lions in the lake maybe started this whole legend because there's not much in terms of folklore beyond the kind of 20th century, I suppose. Um, Sure. Which is quite an interesting historical story. And the the legend goes that when the government realized that sea lions uh, were too distracted by fish rather than attaching the limpet mine, (laughs) that they they pulled the funding and he just left the sea lions in the lake. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, that's wow. why there's a, you know, buffalo on Catalina Island. It was, I think they were, they were brought there uh, for a movie for shoot. For a movie. And then, uh, that happens quite a bit where animals are just left. It's like, well, they'll, they'll figure it out. I can't remember if you sent us this, but it was something that I came across today and you had sent us so much stuff. But like, are you familiar with the Royal Air Force Base Redlow Manor? Yes, I am. Yeah. I know that this Porton Down, the research center is nearby. There's quite a few military bases in that area. Um, and I believe that I think it was Nick Redfern and there was another uh, researcher, Tony Dodd, who they had spoken to a soldier who claimed that they'd taken uh, some kind of body to Porton Down for research. So it kind of very much ties it to the Roswell story. But they were clear to say that this person was remaining anonymous. They weren't putting their name forward. So I don't know how much of that is adding a bit of extra pizzazz to the story in the sense of you know just add an extra twist because if that was a a thing that happened it makes it so much more hollywood in that sense i suppose here's the thing about redlow manor how far away is redlow and how far away is porton down from where this incident took place two and a half three hours drive maybe okay redlow i had not heard of redlow but i understand that it's sometimes called the area 51 of the area in terms of I mean, when you look at it, it just looks like a country house for someone with a little bit of money. I think it was part of the civil um, kind of nuclear plan where they had this. I think there was it was one of those places where they'd evacuate all the VIPs and create the yeah. good from London, and they'd then live under this manor in some kind of underground city, essentially. Um, I well, think there's that's... a picture like on Wikipedia of the operations room, and it is straight out of Doctor Strangelove. It's, yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's a giant map. It's all ladies, and they're pushing uh, ships around. It's like, is this real? 
and this was underneath this house that looks like it's 500 years old, but I guess it's not. I've been to a nuclear bunker from that era. There's one uh-huh. in near Wrexham that is now a recording studio. And uh-huh. somebody bought, and um, you know, it's great. We went there for a, for a radio show. You go inside, and they've still got all the kind of really thick doors. Um, yeah, they've modified the room you're describing. They had a smaller version in, in this nuclear bunker, and it was now a control room for the for the recording studio. But <laughs> they had pictures as it was, and they had some local people who manned the post and everything. But you do get these kind of Cold War relics in the in the UK. And Redlow Manor and also Porton Down, I think they're still quite important sites to the military even today. Um, I know Porton Down is where like the UK military's top research goes on into like chemical and biological warfare. Oh. I think it's probably where they keep all the dangerous strains of things to research for cures or vaccines or whatever. So it's one of those places where um, there was the recent poisoning with the the kind of Rus- exiled Russian guy and his daughter. Oh yeah, um, the Novichok. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the investigation was all happening there, you know, is, is where all the oh. top military scientists are. That's not too far away either? No, no. Um, Salisbury, uh, Porton Town is near Salisbury, which is in Wiltshire as well. Okay. Salisbury Plain is near, well, it's kind of Salisbury area is famous for Stonehenge. Uh, yes. Um, so there's lots of open plains and of course. Uh, places like Avebury, you know, all these kind of like... Um, neolithic sites and everything so yeah it's, it's, it's a really interesting place you've got a mixture of ancient standing stones and then you've got a ton of military bases as well. hello everyone i'm dewey yates and this is astonishing legends let's get back to the show what are the stories that relate to the idea of bodies being taken as it re- relates to the berwin incident I think there was a, a soldier who I think he was going under a pseudonym, but he described seeing bodies being loaded onto trucks in um, biological suits, the suits they put on to protect themselves. I, th- I think the understanding is they put the bodies in those and then into some boxes, loaded them up into an armored truck and then headed off to um, port and down. And I think he was his rank. He was quite low ranking. He was just there as a kind of a cleanup crew, I, I suppose. So okay. that was the story that was given. Again, I have no idea <laughs> it's kind of, if there's any um, any confirmation of that on any kind of factual basis at all. That's one guy, and he's anonymous, so it's hard to know. That's not corroborated anywhere uh, no. besides that one person. Exactly, yeah. So to me, those stories are great. I love these kind of stories. You know, they give it a kind of a, a real kind of certain energy, but for me, the the real kind of heart of this story is within that community and and the kind of the multiple people who had the shared experience, I suppose. But also the fact that they're so confident in it, and because it was a shared experience, there's no shame to talk about it. There's no fear of being judged because when an entire community experiences something like that, they're adamant and they're more than happy to talk about it and tell you about it. And just because they have no reason to doubt themselves, because they can look at a neighbour and they can confirm exactly the same thing, <laughs> you know, in that sense, there's no yeah. doubt in their minds. So. It's interesting because when you come to a mystery like this, there's these camps and some of them will accept that human part of the equation. Others will completely discount it and say, oh, well, you know, eyewitness testimony is uh, notoriously inaccurate. And and I would agree in the case of like a particular incident, if you've got one or two people, you know, we all watch Dateline and 48 Hours and whatever, and they were wrong. They were wrong about the shirt, the eye color, whatever. They misidentified somebody because they're not capable of, of making those kinds of observations. But on the other hand, when you get more and more and more people into the equation, 
you start to wonder about what they saw, because it seems to me that with regard to the Berwyn incident, there's no question that something happened. So then the next question is that everyone who thinks they saw something, are they all disqualified from being able to make an assessment of what it was? You're going to have people of varying levels of education and experience. You're going to have folks that are professionally trained. There might be people that are have been in the military and they're experts in aircraft, whatever. But like when you take them all together, you have to average out their body of experience and say, well, we all saw this thing. And no, it was not the first three explanations that have been shoved down our throats. So to me, I think that's really interesting. The thing about the people who saw it as well, none of them really, or very few of them necessarily leapt to the conclusion that it was a, a spacecraft full of aliens either. A lot right. of them just say, well, we don't really know what happened. We experienced something. And these are the things we all saw and we all corroborate with each other. None of them have really um, necessarily been sold on the conclusion it was a UFO. A lot of the time they're just waiting for the government to release the official explanation, which they, they obviously they've released an official explanation, but not one they necessarily buy as a legitimate one. So a lot of the time they just go, well, we'll wait for the files to be declassified in 40 years time or however long it takes yeah, to find out what yeah. actually did happen. So they're quite cynical about it. The impression that you get from them is that they think it was something related to the military just because of the military turning up, whether it was shooting something down or a test or whatever it could have been. They're dubious about any of the explanations they've heard so far. And most of the people that we spoke to were kind of still waiting. They were kind of assuming that as the decades go on, <laughs> and kind of as, as time passes. The word's going to come out. Yeah, exactly. As, it, be, as it becomes less relevant to national security, then maybe they'll just let it out one day um, and they can go, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was amazed by how many seemingly parallel things to the Roswell. I mean, I know that was kind of a joke. It was the Roswellsh incident for Wales. But there are similarities in reports of bodies being carried away. Pieces were taken to Carswell Air Force Base currently, and things have been studied. So there are a lot of, maybe a lot of these stories with crashes end up the same as we've covered. Also like Kecksburg, where suddenly something crashes, people see something. There is a device in this case, but the military immediately shows up it would appear that they were tracking it or they were aware of it somehow. And in those cases, for me, that's an experimental aircraft that went down, that they were already tracking. That's what I wonder in this case as well. Is it something that they were test flying that crashed? The place where the orange fire was, was that public land or private land? I think it would have been common land. So did any civilians ever make it up there to check for themselves if there was any evidence of anything? Or was it just feedback on searches that were supposedly no, no. done by the authorities. This was land that anyone can go on. Right now there's sheep grazing there. There would have been immediately afterwards as well. I've I've hiked at both sides of the mountain where it was seen. Um I've gone looking with with some of my colleagues from the show I was working on where we were just looking for any kind of crater site we found something that was like a dip in the but it was the other side of the mountain and yeah when you speak to the local farmers they and they say we couldn't find anything we were interested you know that was the the buzz that was in the village afterwards was what happened up there so uh, a lot of people were interested but nobody ever confirmed ever finding anything up there and i mean there is the whole mountain range as well there's tons of plane wreckage from world war ii because you know yeah you sent us some pictures of stuff. yeah so it's pretty it's, amazing yeah it's crazy so you'll go up there you'll find 
you know, old Mustangs and P-38s and all these other kind of World War II aircraft because there was a lot of training in the area, but also because visibility would suddenly dramatically disappear all across Wales. You know, you get kind of mist come down, there's a lot of high rainfall, um, the weather would turn bad and people would just fly into the side of the mountains. You know, it was, it was quite a treacherous place to fly those kind of aeroplanes around and you find wreckage all across the mountains up there. You find people hike up there and put flowers down. There's memorials next to them. And there's literally hundreds of them all across all of the mountains in Wales. Um, on that basis, you think, well, you know, it wouldn't be that hard to find that kind of wreckage. Most of these people can identify this. You can see it on Google Earth a lot of the time. You can find some of these uh, these wreckages. People track them and there's websites where you can find the information about who was on board and what happened and, mm. and kind of find them for yourself, really. And they ask people to kind of leave to leave the wreckage there as it is. They're kind of preserved in a sense where they're so isolated and people rarely pass unless you're really looking for them, that they're kind of you know, you get propellers and intact plane parts just still strewn across the hillside. So it's not something that is an alien thing to find wreckage of aircraft all across there. So whatever it was, was there no wreckage at all or was whatever wreckage there was removed, I guess? It seems strange to me, too, with as many people as were describing the glowing orange light that was stationary. Whether there's wreckage or not, it would seem that if you went where you saw that, there would be traces of something on the earth, whether the earth was burnt or, or you know, there were depressions or nothing, but there's nothing. You can't imagine the military turning up with, you know, a few square foot of heather that hasn't been scorched and replanted. <laughs> you know, right, right. There would have been, right. like you said, there would have been scorch marks that would have indicated, yep. And, and they knew roughly where it was. The people there knew this area, so they could see in the line of sight roughly where the lights were so it wouldn't have been that they had to scale the entire mountain they would just kind of go well i was stood here and it was in that direction and i'll go and take a look so i know that i sent you some footage and you can see the area there's some trees growing there now roughly where it was and it's not a huge area you know it's a mountain range but it's one that is not particularly vast so um in terms of the the interest from local people who knew the area nothing's been found of significance which makes it even stranger in that sense to me because whatever was making those lights did it land? Did it just kind of hover there for a while? Did it crash? I mean, what was it if, if it was just an aircraft that kind of maybe struggled and needed to land somewhere and then be recovered by the military? What caused the explosion? You know, there's nothing really adds up in that sense. Yeah. And where's the truck with the thing on the back of it and the tarp? That drove away. Exactly, and, and the thing is, <laughs> there's no there's no real road up there as well. The um, yeah, the one road up there is you you need a, a decent kind of four by four vehicle to get up there. Yeah, you'd have to fly it out with a helicopter, and everyone would see that. So exactly, yeah. Was there reports of people being prevented from immediately searching any areas up there? Uh, yeah, let's talk time. about that camera story. Yeah, that camera story. Yeah, so that that was off a, a gentleman called Monty who was in one of the pubs that we we went in. To speak. Yeah, and by the, the way, thank you for those clips that no, you let fine, us use. Thank fine. you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, you kind of speak to these people and they'll say, and my friends saw this and my friends saw that. So the, 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 again, they're great stories that kind of add a bit of depth, but the story was, you know, a news photographer, this was all across the newspapers because it was an event that was reported nationally, you know, because of the tremor, everyone who felt it all across the north of, of the UK, you know, it was a relevant news piece. It was, it was kind of an event that people were talking about on TV, you know, your news crews, there, photographers. And one of the stories is, 
that we heard was, yeah, one of the photographers went up the mountain and a soldier appeared kind of out of a hedge or something and exposed the film. <laughs> so, I love the word hedge in yeah. this application. It just popped out of a hedge. Yeah, exactly. And it was kind of along those, you know, that they, they were in camouflage and they didn't see them. And the next thing you know, they'd uh, they'd exposed their film. And we, we had another great story from one of the locals. And again, I have no idea if any of these stories are true, but they're actually yeah. really good stories. So yeah. <laughs> there was a farmer plowing a few years later and he hit something and he dug it up and to him it resembled a Russian communicates like a spy device for communicating obviously someone he believed that someone had buried some kind of uh, radio that they could call in with information they'd found or whatever had happened now that adds an act, even better twist in that sense yeah but, but I, that again, could I've apply no to any operation true. or incident during the war yeah, right exactly not necessarily but God, yeah when you think about all the stuff like that that must have gotten left behind. I mean, when you t- you talk about the crashed aircraft and all that, it just all the remnants of war. It's fascinating, and especially when you get out there in the country. How close was the earthquake to the actual sighting of this super fireball or this bright light? Was it immediate? I thought that there was some lag time there. That's what brings it into question, right? Yeah. So the actual epicenter, I think, was Lake Bala. And the mountainside, I mean, you can drive between the two in about 10 minutes, five minutes, kind of roughly. It's not, it's literally just down the road from where people saw the lights. So my understanding is that the lights appeared after the tremor, after people had gone to explore and to see what had happened. So I'm not quite sure. You kind of get a few different explanations. Like some people saw the lights up there and that's why they went up the mountain. And then, you know, they didn't quite see anything. And then everything just lit up suddenly, as, as he described it. So... I think the timeline, because you've got people rem- remembering from a few different uh, recollections from a few different years back or decades ago, it tends to vary. But the lights were generally immediately after the tremor had happened. Right. I mean, that to me calls into question, as you said at the top of the interview, and we find this all the time with mysteries that we, you know, we, we tend to cover, whether it's Dyatlov Pass and <laughs> Infrasound being the culprit or something else, the explanations we find don't cover everything. Maybe it's 60-70%, but not totally. And here, it's the idea that if it's faulty eyewitness testimony or, or faulty memory of it happening before or after the impact, it's still not exactly at the same time, which you would expect with a like a super bolide like the Chelyabinsk incident happening at one time. It's not like you you get the earthquake and then a few seconds later, then you see a light, even a minute later, then you see some lights. The timelines don't seem to be adding up here. So that for me calls into question that, you know, these two incidents as being a um, an explanation that covers everything. Yeah, it, I agree. You know, it covers part of it or it would cover one aspect of it, but ignoring a big significant other part of it in that sense yeah. you know so yeah it, it's for me the efficient explanation is what really draws me to it because it's right. just, it just boggles the mind to kind of think that that would be released and that people would kind of go oh, okay yes i'm i'm happy with this you've completed that circle and i I can rest easy now knowing that this really unlikely thing (laughs) and you've got to wonder like the 
whoever was coming up with their explanation, what the, the what the kind of meeting they had where they pieced together. <laughs> as well. well, we say that, yeah, we say that a lot. It's like you get to a point where the mundane or even the military technological explanation falls far short of what people had described seeing. I, that always, you know, came to mind. Well, it's a to swamp me. gas thing. Well, it's a, you know, it's we always come so back strictly. to it. Yeah. Or the Phoenix lights. People saw, you know, a pattern of giant orbs glowing in a chevron pattern or, uh, you know, kind of an arrow, a large arrow pattern with no light, the light of the stars being blocked out between these lights. But of course, it's jets dropping flares because that's the closest thing that anybody can think of that still makes sense and is explainable. But it's, Well, it, and also, but I just short. want to point out, one of the first pilots to report the Phoenix Lights was Kurt Russell. And oh, he is, uh, <laughs> yes, we do love that factoid, yeah. Yeah, he's the action star, so you can trust him for sure. I want to, <laughs> well, I want to get him on our show about that. Well, it's that. Snake Plissken. I, I, I trust him implicitly. <laughs> Snake Plissken, yeah. There you Escape go. But New York. Yeah, in, in this case, though, it seems like Chelyabinsk, the explosion in the sky, which happens generally with a uh, with a super bolide, which is a, a large meteor, you know, exploding in the sky generally, and extremely bright, lighting up the night sky like it were day. That's an explosion that happens, and there's certainly lots of damage. There was glass broken. There was damage from, of course, the explosion, but not so much like an earthquake, because again, that's an explosion in the sky. And sometimes these, these hit the ground, but again, the light in the sky would be before the impact. And here it's like the timeline of the experience is off. Listen to this paragraph on Wikipedia about it with regard to the explanation. Declassified Ministry of Defense documents suggest the incident was caused by the combined effects of an earthquake and a meteor. The Institute of Geological Sciences, now the British Geological Survey, reported that a magnitude 3.5 earthquake was felt at 8.38 p.m., that night over a wide area of northern Wales and as far as Liverpool, England. Also in Formby, 13 miles north of Liverpool. It was not immediately identified for what it was, hence the police investigation. However, the magnitude of the shock was such that had it been due to impact, the resulting crater would have been large enough to be easily visible. The unusual lights reported may have been simply the meteor but may also have included the phenomenon known as earthquake light. Mm. Earthquake light. By the way, that has its own page, earthquake light. It's the kind of thing that, that we might say, oh, it was earthquake lights if we were talking about something else and it suited us to explain it that way. <laughs> like in terms of confirmation bias. Supposedly, earthquake light is a luminous aerial phenomenon that reportedly appears in the sky at or near areas of tectonic stress, seismic activity, or volcanic eruptions. Skeptics point out that the phenomenon is poorly understood, and many of the reported sightings can be accounted for by mundane explanations. So, to me, the earthquake light sounds like the mundane explanation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a strange phenomenon that when it happens... But it sounds natural. It's like the green flash or anything that uh, you know people see on the horizon. Or uh, I looked for the green seen. flash personally. Yeah. Oh, you've seen it. You've seen no, it. No, never saw it. Nothing happened. Yeah, <laughs> but that's very rare. And I I know people here in Los Angeles, not even near the water, who have seen it, but close to the horizon, where mm -hmm. it's a uh, kind of a blip. And again, that just sounds like a very rare phenomenon that happens. That's atmospheric, but nothing paranormal really. It just happens so infrequently. 
that it's hard to study, much like earthquake lights. However, with earthquake lights, now, even just recently, I believe, uh, uh, Scott, what was that in Mexico City? September 8th, 2017, you saw it. Uh, there was a, a big one in Peru in 2007. There was several of them going on. And it's just a strange thing where it's a flash. But here's what's interesting is that uh, there are two types of earthquake lights. There is pre-seismic EQL or earthquake lights, which happens a few seconds before an earthquake, or this is really interesting to me, a few weeks prior to an earthquake, uh, it mm-hmm. can happen. So it's a buildup, maybe you could say it's a buildup of energy. And then there's uh, the second kind, the co-seismic EQL, which can happen uh, near an epicenter, or I guess as they say, earthquake-induced stress, or quite a ways away from the epicenter, but connected as kind of maybe a, a you know, as, as part of the wave train of the earthquake. So again, it doesn't sound that crazy, but what's funny is that there are still those that will, I guess, kind of debunk that idea that these don't even happen at all. People aren't seeing this kind of thing. Well, right. Yeah. This is the case of where they're explaining away whatever happened at Berwyn and saying, well, it was the earthquake and a meteor, or it was the earthquake and earthquake lights. And when they offer earthquake lights as an explanation, what they've done is open the door for skeptics who are completely against the idea of earthquake lights. <laughs> so they're, they're right. proffering a solution that even skeptics don't believe, and including uh, Brian Dunning, who's somebody we've mentioned multiple times on the show. He says that uh, researchers should be concerned about the fact that there are no documented confirmed observations of earthquake lights. It is a red flag that there is no consistency of what they are, when they happen, and where they happen. It is likely that there is not one known proven phenomenon. However, a significant amount of video footage has surfaced since the advent of sites like YouTube that claim to represent this. One example being the 2017 Mexico earthquake. Although no consistent explanation has been agreed upon, there is also a, quote, staggering volume of literature. Hardly any of these papers agree on anything. And Dunning says, I'm forced to wonder how many of these eager researchers are familiar with Hyman's categorical imperative, quote, do not try to explain something until you are sure there is something to be explained. <laughs> Dunning's final conclusion is that until there is pending decent evidence, be skeptical of claims of earthquake lights. He's one of the number one and most respected skeptics, somebody we come across all the time and uh, have interacted with, basically saying that earthquake lights, there's no proof that they exist. So what's happening here with regard to Berwyn is that folks are saying, well, it was earthquake lights and an earthquake, or... It was what we already mentioned earlier, the extremely unlikely confluence of a meteor and an earthquake happening at the same time. All of these explanations seem extremely far-fetched. Also, and the military turned up. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah and exactly. on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's to watch the earthquake light. <laughs> right. yeah, like Reese a, in yeah. with the button right there. That's exactly right. And on top of that, the military turned up. So <laughs> The fact that they declassified the explanation of the earthquake and the meteor. Why would you classify something in the first place? Right. Right. Yeah, we're classifying. The you just can't handle the truth. Earthquake is classified. <laughs> Does that make more sense to you? Because I guess if I had to pick between the two, either the confluence of earthquake plus uh, something like a super bolide exploding in the sky or or hitting there being an impact without a crater or earthquake lights of some kind, that makes more sense because it's easier to buy that, okay, maybe you just had the singular earthquake 
And then this phenomena that lasted and was different colors, but lights. And I guess I'm more ready to buy off on that one if I had to choose between the two. Does that make more sense to you, between the two? I guess in terms of thinking about, you know, real measured scientific things that have, yeah. that do happen on a regular basis, you know, an, a meteor showers happen, earthquakes happen. And if the earthquake lights were, were as explained as like the northern lights, for instance, then it would make perfect sense and be a really reasonable explanation, you know, that there was an earthquake and then these lights came out of the ground that would explain everything that was seen, I guess, in that sense, with the exception of of the military, I suppose. So if there was evidence about that, then I think that it would certainly seem like a reasonable explanation. There could be other explanations for why the military were in the area. Maybe they heard the explosion and they were turning up to respond, but that has never been revealed as why they were there and what was happening. So it hasn't been proven in that sense. So it's hard to take it on board on the basis that it seems quite flimsy as a real thing. I'm not a scientist. I'm a producer who's made <laughs> comedy right. and documentary and things. So. <laughs> and, and we're much less than that, even. Yeah, so. I couldn't explain Northern Lights to yeah. you. <laughs> right. Explain, anyway. <laughs> My kids never ask me why it happens. Right. So, the, um, so maybe as a thing, I, I don't know, but um, it's never been put forward by anyone who, who claims to be an authority as something to, to explain it away, I guess, in that sense. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You'll love this podcast. Prepare to listen. Just kidding, it's Jen. Let's get back to the show. What do you think about the theories that are non-scientific that relate to Welsh lore and that sort of thing? Is there any particular Welsh lore that fits well with these series of events? There's lots of legends about kind of fairy lights on kind of uh, moorland and deserted areas that would lead people astray in the dark. Um, you kind of get these local legends of mysterious lights that were often explained away by fairies. And, and that's one of the really interesting things that I find with UFO law is that, especially with Welsh folklore, there's some real similarities. So fairies were, Welsh fairies seem to like to abduct people. They used to like to abduct children and swap the children with their own children. Um, creatures called changelings. Lots of those creatures are um, were kind of hideous babies, and people used to have to bribe the fairies to bring their original child back. There's people being led into um, areas that kind of give them an experience of lost time. Um, there's lots of interesting kind of similarities that feel like there must be some tie between the folklore of the past and the folklore of today for me, which I find really fascinating that this it seems to be like a modern way of retelling some kind of cultural or psychological phenomena that people experience in terms of abduction, lost time, bright lights. And there was a there's an author called Arthur Machen and he wrote a book. I think it must have been in the eighteen hundreds. And if you read it, it's quite creepy because the aliens the description really resembles grey aliens. I don't know whether that's a coincidence, but is unnerving in that sense, <laughs> given what people imagine an alien looks like today. I, I won't even read Communion, and that's recent, so <laughs> compared to that. <laughs> There's some real similarities, generally speaking, with, with UFOs and Welsh folklore. And the only one I can think of specifically is, is these kind of mysterious lights that people would see that would lead you astray and fall down a, a crevice or something and injure yourself. You know, it was kind of, I suppose, trickster kind of spirits that, that would yeah. kind of lead people astray. And we have those in the U.S. They call them puckwudgies. And uh, we've talked to people that have encountered them. They've tried to 
lead them off into the woods, the idea being that they lead you over a cliff or something like that. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Or if you want to get scientific about it, it's another dimension and you just, yeah. you don't come back. But, but it's, Oh, it's, that's the scientific explanation? Okay. Well, I mean, and again, the, in the days of old, their realms are underground or it's another location, but that's kind of the symbolic idea to me anyway, that something is happening. And, and because here's the strange thing is that there are currently today people reporting stories like that of seeing like fairy lights and feeling this beckoning call in the pit of their stomach, but then they snap to reason and don't follow them away because they lead off to into the deep dark woods or somewhere else. But these reports are not just from antiquity. They continue. And uh, we know people, credible people that have claimed to have seen diminutive people, little people of some kind, and so that's the freakiest thing. It's like, well, maybe you're hallucinating. Maybe you've got some mushroom spores going on, something happening. But people think like, well, that's just the way people explain things back in the olden days. But it continues today, at least with these sightings. So when you see something like Berwyn and the lights, people, I think, naturally kind of go to these local folkloric legends to explain them because it, it's still alive. You know, we just covered the Flannan Isles uh, mystery of the Lighthouse Keepers, and uh, author Keith McCloskey was talking about uh, the legends and lore of the people of the Outer Hebrides, and they still kind of keep these legends alive. There's still a, a good belief in the magical world. When you visited the area, did you hear a lot of uh, local people sneak in an explanation or try and have a mystical explanation for what they saw? No, I guess the closest that people came to kind of getting into that realm was an explanation of friends of friends who'd seen lights in the lake, you know, oh. so that there was some kind of something going on under, under, the, under the water in the lake. Um, the interesting thing is that a lot of the time, a doorway to the fairy realm in, in Welsh folklore would be through water. That was a, a way of um, going to where they live, which which is interesting because there seems to be a lot of theories around UFOs being near water and coming out of lakes and the sea and everything. So yeah, yeah. Also, you've got things like the Great Orm, which is this huge kind of rocky peninsula above the the town of Llandidno, which is like a Victorian um, seaside resort. There's kind of like a, a really ancient mine there. Yes. It, within this rock where I think it was... Copper, I think, right? Was it copper? Yeah, so, so yeah. It be, it's been mined for as long as anyone can really remember. And there's artifacts down there of old mining tools from like a thousand years ago or, or however long it, it was kind of uh, mined for, really, I guess. But there's lots of sightings around the Orm. There's lots of local researchers who've got abduction stories of people, you know, losing time in their cars. And um, for the show, we really wanted to cover this. And we, we went to try and arrange a visit there. And I spoke to the, the tour guide who takes people down into the mines. I explained what the show was about, and he instantly kind of cut me off and said, I'm fed up of people like you come to look for aliens in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> fed up with people like you. <laughs> but then on top of the Orm, there's a gift shop, and one of the rooms in the gift shop is incredible. They've, they've decorated it with aliens as in like the iconic aliens film there's a millennium yes. falcon in it's kind of oh yeah i saw those pictures of that place you sent us that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a real mishmash of sci-fi paraphernalia in there that right, seems to right. be that they've tried to angle a gift shop around the ufo kind of legends there really so it seems to be there's other researchers who've there's a place called puffin island and there's a few news articles related to 
people seeing UFOs come out of the water there. And um, it seems to be that there's activity related to that. But, you know, I, I just find it quite interesting that that ties back to the to the folklore of, you know, that is where the fairy realm was. That's where you would go and that's where you would lose time and be abducted to. And then that's where modern UFOs are kind of associated with, you know, bodies of water and coming out of the water and things. So, yeah, it's just like a fascinating overlap. I don't know how it meshes together, but there's something just quite compelling about it, I think. Yeah, we've seen a lot of these connections come up that I think before we started this podcast, we weren't even considering because it'd be like a one-off, you could say, but then it keeps coming up again and again. And what it is are these overlaps between different types of phenomenon and really disparate ones. You know, again, like with USOs, unidentified submerged objects and folklore, uh, you know, strange creatures. We've noticed that as we've been uh, going on with these stories is that there are these weird overlays and connections just in the descriptions of the events that people uh, experience, but also locations. And it's like, what's going on here? So I know it doesn't make sense and you wouldn't normally connect those kind of things, but there does seem to be some kind of, you know, connection, even if it's just folkloric. There's something that seems to be going on because, again, you line these things up and it's the locations, it's the times, it's the uh, the descriptions and uh, the testimonies of people. So There's lots of unusual elements in the sense of some Welsh folklore is very bizarre. It's kind of, there's a lot of giants. There's a real tradition as well of holy wells. There's a lot of natural springs that people associate a lot of ceremony to and um, healing powers and, you know, their own little weird sightings there of, of fairy folk. And and this is in South Wales, these cases of fairy funerals where someone will hear music and they'll see essentially small people carrying a coffin as if they've got a funeral procession. And there's all these weird stories <laughs> that people have recorded from, and these tend to be more like the late 19th century rather than anything recent, but um, people kind of collected these eyewitness testimonies of people. But you get all these weird, quirky things that just, you know, are just so bizarre and defy all explanation, but do happen in... The thing is about the, about the UK and these kind of countries with history like this is that you've got so many different layers of different societies living on top of each other and they become so meshed in, in so many different ways that you kind of have these bizarre manifestations of folklore and and kind of real quirks that are hard to hard to kind of explain but then people see them again even in a modern context they, they just see things they can't explain like one example would be you know there are legends of giants but people we've spoken to in and around that area around Snowdonia claim to have seen things that would resemble Sasquatch or Bigfoot, which just doesn't make any sense because this is such a small place where there's no vast wilderness where you could find some kind of biped that would survive without being discovered. This is like a really small area with main roads and a post office <laughs> and all these other things you'd expect. So yeah. it, it just doesn't make any sense, but people say they see these things and it's, it's just... There's a lot of weirdness in that sense that just kind of... I agree, there's some kind of unifying paranormal theory that kind of must bind all this weirdness together. Yes. I don't know. Maybe there's magnets playing with our brains or something. I don't know. But it's be... Yeah. You know, I guess John Keel, the, uh, you know, author of uh, The Mothman Prophecies and, and many other books, spent a lifetime uh, trying to log this, as well as uh, Charles Fort. You can collect the stories, but it's maybe impossible to analyze them beyond a certain point because... It just stops. It's like with Berwyn here. You have these incidents. We know people experienced them because so many people did. It's not just one person's imagination. Are the descriptions 
accurate, correct? Is the timeline correct? Well, I think you can get a pretty good target here around it, but the explanations stop at a certain point because there's no more data on it. So again, does folklore take the, the part where science stops, at least at this point? And for some, again, going back to uh, what I thought was interesting about Brian Dunning's criticism of it with Hyman's categorical imperative, you know, do not try and explain something that until you're sure there is something to be explained. Where is that point? Who decides then when when something is worthy of being explained or researched or whether there's something there or not? That's a moving line to me because, again, one person's something is another person's nothing. So when you see like this event here, it's like, well, something happened. So many people saw it. It's very odd. It seems like at least two different things going on here, which can be to some combined into two. Some it's two separate things in an impossible coincidence. But the more we look into this, the more we seem like we're folklorists, you know, in looking for an explanation. It also kind of goes into other areas as well, because there's a, a Welsh fairy or kind of goblin creature called the Pucca, I think it's pronounced. It's like P-W-C-A. I'm Welsh and I don't think I even get it right. But <laughs> the, um, <laughs> essentially, this creature is like a, um, what you would describe as a classic poltergeist. You know, it would just appear in somebody's house and they tended to be obsessed with like adolescent girls i think you know or people who were at that stage of life uh which is kind of a thing that you get with certain ghost or kind of uh, cases i guess yeah so, poltergeist specifically yeah exactly and they would smash things and throw things around and be mischievous and move things and that was just the folklore explanation for one of those elements and they were known to move around to different houses in in the same village in a sense Interesting. It's folklore. It is, it is all does tie back to folklore, right? <laughs> but then you get into this, and this is something we brought up before, which is the whole sort of chicken and the egg thing. Is it folklore because things were happening or is it things were happening because of folklore? You know, what inspired what? These tales have been told for generations and across multiple cultures. Is that because it was rooted in, in something that was unexplainable? You know, that's what's so fascinating about it to me. Well, there was one story that really kind of helps me focus some of those ideas is further up the road in a place called Lamberis for a, a project related to this, the show I was working on when I investigated um, Berwyn. We spoke to a local historian who did kind of guided walks talking about history and, and kind of um, the area. And he was tell a story of in a village just down the road from there, they would warn children not to wander up the mountain because there was a, a giant with a golden chain around his neck and he would get them. And this was a generational thing. Apparently, this story was the local myth of the village just to keep the kids from wandering off. Sure. And they did an archaeological dig and they found, I think it must have been about a thousand years old, maybe older off the top of my head, I'm not quite sure. But within the dig, they found the grave of a man who was about six foot seven, which at the time would have been a giant from that era with a gold chain. So there was they found some kind of evidence that kind of backed up this legend that no one had really connected the dots until they dug this body up, apparently. So that is so cool. I love this kind of stuff. When I was a kid, I was watching like reruns of the X-Files when everybody else was playing rugby. So it's kind of the kind of thing I could have grew up with. I was just yeah. I was just lucky that I managed to convince the BBC to pay me to make a show about it. So. Yeah, really. Oh, to, by the way, we wanted to thank you for sharing that footage and that audio with us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the show that you worked on? Yeah, it's 
there's a show called The Unexplainers. The show is, the idea is that it's a kind of a comedic look at the conspiracy theory world and myths and legends, um, where one presenter is a skeptic and the other one is a believer. And they go on road trips around Wales, uh, meeting primary witnesses and looking at some mind-blowing theories related to very similar topics to what you guys cover. But it's surreal and weird and British. And (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got to tell you, the one you sent us on this topic, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. No, great chemistry. (laughs) Again, with all those, it it reminded me of uh, the Grand Tour and uh, the trip. I don't care what they're talking about. I can listen to that all day. So it was really entertaining. And it's it's currently being developed for a TV show. For, for BBC Wales. So um, whether that'll be viewable in North America, I don't know yet. It's still in production. <laughs> <at the moment, laughs> so. Reese, thanks so much for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Well, that was a lot of fun. I'm so glad he came on the show because it's nice to get a perspective from somebody who actually lived over there and has family over there. Yeah, not only that, he's a journalist. Yeah. So who better to uh, kind of report on something like that? I think, you know, with this particular incident, one of the things that stands out to me is it's another one of those cases where there's so many witnesses reporting the same thing. I mean, like, you know, I brought it up when we were talking to him, but like Shag Harbor or the Phoenix Lights, where you've just got so many people all seeing and feeling, in this case, the same thing. Right. I mean, some of the descriptions vary a little, but only like with color that I noticed. It's like you might hear a greenish glow, a red-orange glow, but the timelines of when the glow happened, that all seems to line up for the most part. You know, I mean, of course, yeah, the argument goes that, uh, you know, eyewitness testimony is never that trustworthy, but we always say, like, why? You going to throw it all out now? Some of it has to stick, and some of it is probably pretty accurate, Uh, with a little variation. And that's what you see here, is that everybody seems to have seen and felt literally the same thing. Right. And the other thing that really stuck out to me is when they talk about the egg-shaped craft, which seems like this nondescript thing. Yeah, it's Mork. Well, yeah, it's Mork. You know what else it is besides Mork? Yeah. It's the same thing that Commander David Fravor saw in 2004 from his jet that was part of our Internet Disclosure episode. Yeah, and guess who else saw an egg-shaped craft our very own Rob Christofferson. Yeah, so you start to wonder if these are all coming from the same place and how are they getting here, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, but the egg is a very, to us humans here and chickens and and fowl, it's a very uh, rudimentary, basic shape. And uh, people have talked about, you know, the bioengineering of the egg shape. It's got a lot of strength to it, especially uh, end-to-end. You ever done that thing where you, you place an egg on the table, uh, standing straight up, and you try and press on it, there's a lot of strength to that. So maybe there's something to that shape, you know? Maybe so. It's it's aerodynamically efficient. Did you say that? I had not yet, but I was kind of hinting at that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the thing for me is that when people are saying they're seeing that, it's interesting that it might actually be corroborated by a, an actual military incident in the, in the yeah. U.S., albeit many years later. It's something that comes up over and over. So I thought it's fascinating. It's not like sealing the deal or anything, but it's just an interesting observation. The other thing that's fascinating to me about this story is the confluence of events. You know, the the earthquake, the idea of that. And the more I thought about the earthquake, the more I had a lot of questions about it. Hugh Lloyd talks about his TV going out. Uh, We have another local guy talking about a washing machine falling over. Yeah, he said the clothes spilt out of it with the water. Yeah. Yeah, do you remember the Northridge quake? Yeah, totally. I I lived in LA for that. Um, I I wound up moving away for several years to New York, but then I came back. But I was there for Northridge. That was a 6.7. 
Yeah. You know, some highway bridges fell, some buildings definitely collapsed. There were several deaths, uh, but those were near the epicenter. This earthquake is being described as a 3.5. And I mean, we have 3.5s for breakfast in LA. I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> see things true. falling over in a 3.5 earthquake. Like they just don't. That's why it was so weird. It's more like, I mean, they're both shock waves, I guess, but it's like, what's so strange you know, and, and they're felt over long distances, certainly earthquakes, and they have a traveling speed, which is very fast. You know, but this one was, was felt up to 100 miles away, even outside of Liverpool. Yeah. And what Scott and I are saying, it's, I, I think, is like, you know, strange things, because it's physics, extreme physics, is that weird things happen. I mean, I, I know people that their bed ended up on the other side of the room. Yeah. You know, my whole bookcase fell down and a bunch of stuff fell off the shelves. Again, though, that was a 6.7. That's what I'm saying. I mean, we've had, I I think in the past year, I haven't looked and I I probably shouldn't quote, but I would say that in the past few years anyway, we've had several threes and mid threes. And I don't know anyone who's ever talked about anything falling over, much less a washing machine you know, after a three or a 3.5. Yeah, it's it's just really strange because I'm not, I gauge it by, uh, is the water in the toilet sloshing? Yeah. And then, you know, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, so and, you always I'm, run I'm, in and look at your toilet when there's... <laughs> if I'm around, I just, I'll look down and, yeah, if it's sloshing. Also, people with swimming pools yeah. will say, you know, the water's kind of a cresting there. They got white caps on there. Then you know it's a good one. It's just things that are odd about this. So it doesn't really, to me, add up to like a natural earthquake. Yes, it's a natural, obvious explanation, and they're all a little different. People have often described the different feelings like, oh, that was a roller. That was a low, slow roller. This one was a a sharp jolt. But it's not what these people are describing. So that right there is a little different. Yeah, well, and Northridge specifically was, I think, was vertical, if I'm not mistaken. It, don't mm-hmm. quote me on this. I didn't look it up. But I, I believe that it had, um, <laughs> it was there was a vertical thrust to it as opposed to the side to side. And that was right. part of what caused the buildings to collapse because the even the buildings that are engineered properly in LA for earthquakes, they're engineered for side to side motion, but not to right. be picked up and dropped, which is yeah. what caused some of those apartment buildings to collapse as well as... Um, I know at least one house that was up on a hill on stilts, but um, that's crazy. And then there's the whole earthquake light argument, which we talked about a little bit. And Brian Dunning, I want to reiterate how interesting that is to me because Mm -hmm. skeptics of the UFO part of this story like to say that it was earthquake lights that everyone saw. But then other skeptics, including noted and respected skeptic Brian Dunning himself, debunks the idea of earthquake lights. So uh, this is uh, skeptic (laughs) on skeptic skepticking. And, uh, you know, that well, nobody then, likes then, to see that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets nasty. Yeah. Uh, I'm not kidding, actually. It gets verbally pretty nasty if you uh, read the back and forths between uh, some of these folks. But my question then is, or, or it begs the question then, what is it if you don't think it was earthquake lights? Because as we said in the interview and our discussion with Reese, it's like, well, okay, I might even kind of buy that. Like a, a flash of light or something that kind of glows because... If you do buy into the idea of earthquake lights or the green flash and all that, we can't explain it, they have odd properties, you know, happening weeks before the actual earthquake in the different types. So, all right, if you can kind of show that to me, I might buy that as as a glow in the mountains there. But some people aren't buying that. So then if it's not that, then what do you think it was? And I guess if you're just a hardcore skeptic of the hardest of the hardcore is that you say... They were all mistaken. Nobody saw anything. Or it was just kind of an anomaly of light bouncing off the ionosphere or the clouds or whatever it was. Swamp you know, gas. there is a 
swamp gas. There is a lot of fog there, as Reese was saying. And maybe just chalk it up to just totally misidentifying something that occurred in the area that everyone saw. But again, when you ask people that live there all their lives and uh, they've never seen anything like that, well, there's a first time for everything. That's the other thing that's so puzzling about this case, too. On the one hand, you have a ton of eyewitnesses. I mean, Reese said a thousand people lived in this little village. I'm not saying that everyone saw the lights, but everyone definitely felt the rumbling, the earthquake part. And then many, many people saw the lights. So you've got evidence from that standpoint. You would think this would be a case that would leave trace evidence behind, but it doesn't. So everything about it doesn't make sense. There's no leave behind. So either what that means is whatever happened left no evidence of any kind, or that evidence was covertly removed. But, you know, right, Reese was saying right. that people walked the land and saw no evidence of any kind of co- anything, you know, any kind of cover-up or yeah. whatever. So right. on the other hand, we've got the military showing up within 30 minutes, but the closest base is like an hour and a half away. So what does that tell us? That tells us they were either already engaged and tracking something that would have been either friend or foe. If it was friendly, maybe it was an experimental aircraft that went down, which I mm-hmm. think especially lately, we've never really examined it. But I more and more do think that is a plausible explanation for Roswell because I saw a whole special on the Mm. balloons, Mm -hmm. these ultra-high-altitude balloons that they were using to take spy photos and that sort of thing. I believe that it's possible that that is what happened at Roswell. Uh, We're probably going to get a lot of emails about that. But I haven't explored it. I'm still open to (laughs) aliens and UFOs. Everybody knows that. Yeah, Folks, we're not here to solve anything definitively, unless we get something in the mail, <laughs> like the mysterious slides. Or yes, the, our address uh, is available letter. online. If you have the secret solution to any mystery we've discussed or anyone in the world, <laughs> uh, you can trust us. Just mail it to I, us and uh, yeah. we will protect your anonymity, but uh, it, we do also have to verify that you're a real person. Exactly. No, I'm saying that the, I've been waiting for something to come to our post office box. That's just earth shattering revelation here. But what I was saying is that there are so many delightful and fun and interesting and very curious and mysterious connections to Roswell and the various stories that go around because I've watched a lot of documentaries on Roswell, you know, purported uh, people first and second hand, uh, you know, to the incident there. And one theory is that what I like about that and maybe a connection to Berwyn here is that there were two things that happened. And one theory I heard about Roswell was that it wasn't just one UFO crashed. It was two UFOs crashing into each other. Oh, yeah, I heard that a long time ago. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what's interesting is that it's a UFO fender bender. Nobody knows what to do at a four-way stop. The the UFO (laughs) arriving first has the right of way, but if they arrive at the same time, it's the one to the right. Just, you know. know, We're joking around here, but what's interesting about this case, I I think you you can apply it, and maybe it's two different just anomalies, natural, uh, but very rare weather, I I guess, whatever you classify that under, but natural strange anomalies. With Roswell, if you take the two craft crashing into each other, that's two really kind of two, well, I guess it's one incident, but like two separate craft combining to make it even more complicated incident because what people have reported is that there was now two crash sites, two sets of uh, cleanup crews, eyewitnesses to both, and there were certainly eyewitnesses to Roswell. Uh, people claimed, uh, yeah. in fact, one of my, my favorite was a young woman at the time who was on a geological scouting expedition, I guess, with a a university team, and they saw one of the craft, and I think approached it, and suddenly, same kind of thing, military shows up, they were told to face a wall while the cleanup happened for, I don't know, maybe an hour, and this story was told, you know, on her deathbed 
to her nurse. And what I saw was an interview with the nurse on camera relaying this. But again, that can be a military secret. That could just be a military secret, you know? It's not well, that, that's true. a smoking yeah. gun. So, no, no, but what I'm saying is that that does happen. Well, if you believe that story, it doesn't have to be aliens, but that the military does show up. They don't want you to talk about it because what this woman had said, there was a guy in charge. She, he was pretty gruff and mean looking. And, he, and basically what he said is, you talk about this, we'll ruin your life. Right. Take that to mean however you want. Now, I don't know how much of that happened here, but there's some skulking around by military authorities here. Uh, certainly, they're on the scene. And so what, what I'm saying is the connection here is that it's two separate things. In this case, a crash and a light or another craft or something monitoring this. And the two combining to make a really interesting case and even if you don't believe that, the fact that there's an earthquake and some kind of super bolide happening, <laughs> exploding in the sky, leaving no trace, happening at the exact same time is pretty significant. Yeah, that seems pretty crazy. It's an intergalactic, universal, <laughs> you know, just, I don't know, lottery winning kind of thing. We're just yeah. like, that just, it's so impossible, but it could happen, you know? I mean, no matter what happened there, it's obvious that something happened. And whatever it was, the official explanation is ludicrous. It really is, in my opinion, yeah, in terms right. of statistics and probability. Although I know we have listeners out there and even some people in the ARC that maybe could tell me what the likelihood of an earthquake and a meteor being present in the same area at the same time would be. Jeez, I don't know. That's going to take a lot of math. Yeah. A big computer. It just seems... Uh... It, it seems unlikely. It hits you on a gut level. It's kind of like when I heard, uh, you know, I heard weather balloon. And now that that's come back, it's funny because like a year or two ago, uh, you know, my dad heard um, the weather balloon theory again coming up as, no, no, these are really advanced weather balloons <laughs> for Roswell. And he was sold on that. It's like, well, there you go. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a very highly advanced weather balloon. It's like, I don't know, just still doesn't sit right with me. And here it's like, there's something... You know, if you could show that there is likelihood of a natural occurrence and maybe some evidence of it, again, it's like what we talked about with the earthquake lights, people have recorded this. So it's on tape. So I think that's hard to debunk saying that, well, that doesn't exist. Well, okay, then what is that? What did people capture on tape as a huge giant flash or flashes? And so there's something there. That's evidence enough to investigate. If you're going to go back to that uh, scenario there of there being enough to check out in the first place. I think that's enough to check out. Here, there's enough to check out, I believe. Well, the military did. And so that's just not a bunch of um, Welsh folk tales and little people. For the military to scramble and assemble like that on a site, they obviously thought it was something, or they already knew it was something. So yeah. to me, it's something. Well, that leaves us with another definite unexplained incident and a mystery that's come to be known as Roswellsh. Well, that's going to wrap up our show on the Berwyn Mountain incident. Uh, extremely special thanks to Reese Waters. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after with a sister topic to this from just a few years later in the same area that had multiple witnesses, some of whom we'll be talking to. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. 
Galaxy wide. Now here's my segue. Galaxy wide. Now here's my segue. Galaxy wide. Now here's my segue. Galaxy wide. Hi, I'm Dewey Yates. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.